Folks, if you have your Bible with you tonight, could you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 22. <coughs> and David spake unto the Lord the words of this psalm. In the day the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. My high tower and my refuge, my saviour, thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the ways of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. And we'll finish there at verse 7. First of all, folks, can I thank the Reverend McLaughlin and the oversight of uh, Carried Off Free Presbyterian Church for extending to me um, the invitation to come here tonight uh, to share God's, of share of God's saving grace, his provision, and his protection in my life um, as a young child. As I say, it's a pleasure uh, to be here with you and enjoy the fellowship this evening. Folks, I do be honest, open about all aspects of my life. I don't share my story in the manner in which I do for any form of sensationalism, just to give an, or to illustrate an accurate picture of what I encountered as a child. Another day, I want to elevate my grief above anyone here this evening, because I know, folks, there's many people in this gathering, and I'm sure, have come through great trauma in their lives. It's something we, in the journey of life, experience, and we thank thank there's a God in heaven to give us that protection and um, to give us the comfort and reassurance that we need as we go through uh, the trauma. So, folks, is is there any difference in you and I this evening as I'm standing up here uh, sharing my story, uh, and you're down there? Folks, I live in Raffreyland. I've worked in Raffreyland High School um, for nearly almost 30 years now. Um, I'm also a part-time firefighter based in Raffreyland. I've fulfilled that role for about 14 years. Um, we worship as a family in Raffreyland Elam Church, and I'm happily married to Julie. And we have two daughters, Ellie is 19, and Katie is 16, all of which to profess their faith in the Saviour, which is a great blessing and assurance for us as parents our children, as our children go out and face the temptation that this world uh, will, will throw their way. I was brought up uh, in the rural townland of Laganani, uh, situated at the foot of Sleeve Croup in the Dramara Hills, probably fair to say one of the most rural and isolated parts uh, of Northern Ireland. It's a world of difference from up there till here in the in, in Carried Off. Um, I lived in a small one-bedroom college along with my parents, as I thought, and I attended a local primary school in Leitrim, so it was a very, a very rural area, as I say, and the primary school which I attended was only 14 pupils in the entire school, so I couldn't even get a football team out, you know, so, um, but I was happy, and I was content, and um, I wanted for nothing. Money wasn't in abundance. My father was a road worker, and my mother, as I thought, didn't work so life. In that sense, you know, I wanted for nothing. Life was good, but my abiding memory of childhood was one probably of loneliness and isolation, being an only child and living in such a rural area. Life was normal to me until I was nine years old. I can remember um, one morning waking up, I was off school as a result of a heavy snowfall and I had a bad cold. 
and I awakened to find my mother, as I thought, being violently sick. I was greatly concerned because I'd never seen this woman sick before. Uh, I sought assurances from her, was she okay? She assured me she was fine. But I was still inwardly worried there was something wrong because I'd never seen this woman sick, and um, I was concerned for the, the remainder of that day. But several times that day she asked me the question, would I miss her if anything ever happened to her? I gave the usual answers a child at that age would, and I paid no more attention to the question. We both sat down that evening about four o'clock, waiting for my father to come home. I was sitting in one chair, and she was just sitting right beside me in the next, in front of the dark stove. And I heard a wee groan, and I looked across, and her head had slumped forward, and she died in the chair, sitting beside me. Folks, I got up, and I started to cry and sob. I didn't know what else to do. We had no phone. And I was too scared to stay in the house, and the only alternative I had was to run to a neighbour's house, which was half a mile away. And I remember we lived on a steep hill, and I remember trying to run down that road and sliding and falling where the compacted snow was, where the tire tracks were. And I got up, and I tried to run down the middle part of the road, but my wee legs were just getting bogged down in the higher snow in the middle of the road. I was going nowhere. And I remember just standing in that hillside, too scared to go back inside the house, and just I sobbed and I cried, hoping someone would come to my aid. About ten minutes later, what seemed like an eternity, I could see a lawn rover coming up over the brow of the hill. And it was two neighbour men, and they found me in a very distressed and shivering state. They took me in and comforted me, and remained with me until my father came home. My father's car pulled into the street, and you can appreciate the shock that he encountered. Uh, this woman was sitting dead in the chair, and um, I was standing crying in the middle of the living room. The neighbour men left and was moaning my father and I at home at that point till they were going to um, make all their phone calls to relevant parties. And I remember my daddy coming round and, and my mother's I thought sitting dead in the chair and I remember getting down one knee and he says, Sammy, he says, I have something to tell you. Now's the time. He says, this woman, he says, is not your mother. She's your grandmother. Folks, I always knew that someone didn't add up because this woman was 75, my daddy was 49, and I was nine years old. But folks, you had to get into the side of a mindset of a country child. That's what I was told, and that's what I was led to believe. And I referred to her as mummy, and everyone in the community referred to her as my mummy. That was the pretense that was kept up at that time. The only inkling that I had was hanging on the ward when some of the children at school would have said, why do you call her um, your mummy when she's actually your granny? So I defended what I knew and I never thought anything about it because that's what I was told, that's what I was led to believe. My father proceeded to tell me that my mother, my real mother, was still living and she only lived about seven miles from our home. I had no contact with her, I didn't even know she existed. My father told me I had a grandmother on that side and an uncle who my mother live with. My father then told me that him and my mother were still together as a couple and that they went out every Saturday night but they didn't obviously live together and it was a lot to take in for me as a nine year old boy in that just a short space of time. And I remember sitting in the wake house that night trying to make sense of the news that I had heard earlier. My father also told me now my mother was going to be coming home to live with us now as a family. 
And I can remember sitting in that wake house that night and two women just sitting beside me and I was sort of semi-sleeping and, and I could hear one saying, oh, yes, Billy's wife Eva's coming up tonight. And suddenly a realisation came over me that how did these women know about my mother? And then it dawned on me that everyone must know about this because I was hearing this name uh, being discussed uh, even at the wake Eva, Billy's wife Eva. And I had never heard previously there. I was not in recognition of it if I did hear it. Um, the first that I met my mother was on the Sunday of my grandmother's funeral. When the snow came, as I say, and um, in those days you went back to the house of the deceased for tea. Nobody could go back. We had to go back quickly. Um, as I say, the snow was coming or we wouldn't have got home. And I remember my mummy getting into the car with her wee bag. <coughs> and um, that was the first that I had set eyes on her. I remember making it home that night and sitting around the Doric stove, the, the three of us, and it was quite surreal, this new woman in my life. A woman I'd never seen before was now my mother. And there was a degree of anxiousness, nervousness, excitement. But I was filled with anxiety. To give some degree of explanation how that situation evolved, from my mother and my father got together from the outset, it was plagued with difficulties. The two grandmothers on either side didn't approve of the relationship. My father tried to bring my mother home to a one-bedroom cottage. It just was not going to work. My mother had postnatal depression, a condition probably wasn't recognised to the same extent in those days as what it is today. So she had problems, she had difficulties, and she took me away after several disputes. And one day my father went down, he found me in a distressed state, and he brought me home. And my grandmother and him reared me as their own. A new chapter in my life, but I was now consumed with fear and anxiety. I was troubled by that because of the shock I encountered with my grandmother's death. I suppose the news that I had heard. And now all I could think of, what if something happened to either one of my parents? If I had felt sick myself, I thought, am I going to die? That's just the thought processes that I was encountering at that time. I remember one night going into my daddy. I was so, I was kept things very much to myself. But on this occasion, I said to my daddy, I think something bad is going to happen to some of us. But he reassured me. He contented me for that brief moment, and, um, but I was still obviously troubled underneath. My mother and I had got all, were getting on very well. She had made plans what we were going to do in the summer, and it was a, partly an exciting time for me. So she was going to make up for lost time, and the three of us were getting on uh, very, very well. I remember it was Easter Monday, apprentice boy prayed in her and my father was marching. My mother had, I th had myself there, and that day she complained of feeling unwell. As the week progressed, our condition appeared to deteriorate, and I was greatly troubled within myself. Why is my mother feeling sick? What's going on? She was taken to the doctor on the Thursday. We came home that evening. As I say, it was a one-bedroom cottage. We all went to bed, and um, I remember that night couldn't sleep. I was troubled. I kept watching across at my mummy. My daddy had just fallen asleep, and I remember shouting over at her. She wasn't responding, but before that she lifted a wee torch, a wee basin, as if she was going to be sick. And I noticed a wee torch falling out of her hand, it was reflecting up into her face in the darkened room. And to me, she appeared to be unconscious. At this stage, I was really, really frightened. I didn't know why it was my imagination, but when I shouted over at her, she didn't respond. Several times I shouted, she didn't respond. I shouted for my daddy, please get up, I think there's something wrong with my mummy. My daddy got out of bed and he says, Sammy, your mummy's not responding. There's something badly wrong here. 
I still had no phone. And he said, Sammy, would you stay with your mummy while I take the car and go for help? I started to cry because I couldn't stay there on my own. I was too scared. My mummy was in bed. She wasn't responding. And I was just petrified to be there on my own. I said, Daddy, I'll go for help. And I can remember getting the grifter bicycle out of my barn and setting off on the half-mile journey that night to the nearest neighbor's house to raise the alarm. Folks, I was not prepared or equipped for the journey that night because there was no lights in the bicycle. It was a really dark night, but I knew the situation was dire. My mother needed help, and she needed it urgently, and I knew I had to get that help very quickly. I eventually made it to the neighbor's house. The alarm was raised. Um, the ambulance came and t- took my mother to the, to the Lagan Valley Hospital. In the early hours of the morning, I was lying out in the back seat of a relative's car as my father was in the hospital. And I can remember this wee nurse coming out through the doors of the hospital. I picked up out of the back seat and lay back down again. And she came over to the car. She wrapped the window, the relative going down the window, and she says, I'm sorry to inform you. She says, Mrs. Heenan has just died. Uh, my mother had died of a brain hemorrhage. She was only 43 years old, and I had only known her for four months of my life. I immediately popped up and I heard the news and I started to cry and sob and I can remember my words that still to this day I'd lost another mummy because that's how I had reacted and responded to the loss of my mother. I was comforted. My father came out and um, gave me all the comfort a, a father would to his little boy. I was then taken home. Folks, I was distraught and I was devastated because this woman, as I say, only knew her for four months was now gone uh, out of my life. There was only my father and I now left at home. He adjusted to the roles that were required to bring up his nine-year-old child. He cooked and he cleaned and he, he continued on his job and um, he fulfilled all the roles. He was my rock, he was my inspiration. I looked up to him and I idolized him. Sadly, after my mother's death, the grandmother that I'd got to know and the uncle on her side stopped speaking to my father. And they never spoke to my father or I ever again. But folks, as you can appreciate, it was all, my daddy was all that I had. And um, I remember nights I couldn't sleep on my own. I had to sleep with my daddy. And um, I remember nights just waking up to check, was he still breathing? Such was my insecurities that something bad was going to happen to him. Once I got that contentment and reassurance, I drifted back to sleep. I remember nights being snowed in, as is so frequent the case in that hill environment, and looking out over the countryside and just seeing um, darkness and snowdrifts. We still had no phone, thinking to myself, if something happened to my daddy tonight, what would I do? That was what I was thinking as a child, and it's fair to say, I suppose I should have been seeing a, a, a counsellor at that time as a child, but obviously that was an option that wasn't readily available um, at that time. I was becoming increasingly aware of the troubles around us. My father was very much a unionist. He was an orange man. He was in the local band, and he was very proud of what he was. He had a great relationship with all his neighbours from both sides of the community, as so often the case in a rural, <coughs> a rural area. I can remember the time, the tensions building of the time of the hunger strikes campaign and, and slogans being painted on the roads near our home. I can remember the time of the maze escape. The, the, the tension that was in the community that evening when these guys had broke out and there was a general feeling in our area that these people were going to make, some of them were going to make their way to the mountains for, to find a safe house for safe passage across the Irish Republic, which turned out to be the case when four of them were apprehended very close to our home. Folks, we did 
experienced low levels of intimidation. I remember coming home on the 12th of July, 1984, to find all the orange lilies around our home pulled out and pushed through the letter box of our front door. As a wee boy, my daddy was a drummer in the band. As a wee boy, all I wanted to do um, was join the band and drum along with my daddy. And that came to fruition in the, in the, the 1982, the 11th of July, I was deemed ready for the band and they got the wee drum and, and uh, wee jumper and there I was standing on the 12th of July, a very proud and happy wee boy and it was, one, it was a recollection. At, um, it stays or stayed with me um, to this very day, my daddy and I drumming in the band together. 1982 passed, 83, 84, in which I had just started um, Castlewell in high school. My confidence was coming back and you know when you go to a new environment, you meet new friends, it was a daunting experience starting a new school, but even though there was 230 pupils, I was coming from a school of 14, so that was an enormous step for a wee country boy, but I was enjoying it, and my confidence was starting to come back again, and those fears were starting to subside. That was until the 3rd of May, 1985. I was now 12 years old. I can remember that morning vividly. About 7 o'clock, my daddy coming down into the bedroom, I'm saying, Sammy, you lie on. I'm going out to feed the hens. When I say hens, I mean six hens, just for a few eggs, a wee bucket of meal. Folks, I drifted back to sleep, and I was then wakened by what we only describe as a painful, piercing yell on a gunshot. I remember waking up, thinking, what was that I heard? First thing came into my head was that my daddy was out shooting crows. But I looked across in the corner of the room, and as Two legally held firearms were just stood up against the wall, so I quickly discounted that theory. I got into bed and I crawled across the bed to the, the bedroom window and I rubbed the inside of the morning dew away from the window and I just sat there with my chin in my hands and I looked out the window. At this point I could hear my daddy's car start up and I listened intently as that car just reversed round the front of the house. And folks, I sat looking out and there was a strange man reversing away in my daddy's car that I didn't know. He had a wee tea cosy cap on him and he had a duffel coat up to his neck. And folks, he was making his way around the side of the house in his haste and his speed. I don't think he's seen me, but I was just sitting looking out at him. And I watched my daddy's Austin Allegro car drive down that road and I watched it drive along another road at speed until it was out of sight. At this stage, I could feel a real sickness, a real fear on unease coming over me that there was something badly wrong. I made my way out of the home, shouting for my daddy over and over again, hoping he would give me, come round the corner and give me some degree of explanation to what I had heard. So I walked up into the top yard and I looked across the middle of the yard. The wee jug was lying smashed as I went over to the jug. It was, it was surrounded by a pool of blood. I followed the trail of blood round the side of the barn and there I found my daddy lying murdered. Folks, that image that I encountered that morning was, it still haunts me to this day and something that will never, ever leave me. There I was standing in the middle of the country in the isolation and the loneliness and all I could do, I started to sob and cry because my daddy was lying dead in front of me. I then scrambled to try and get the bicycle out of the bar and all I could think of was going to the neighbour's house again and I couldn't find the keys of the bar and we only had the phone installed a week but I had forgot we had the phone installed. 
It was a beautiful sunny morning. I remember just setting off on foot, running as fast as I can to get to the nearest neighbor's house, which was half a mile away. My asthma started to play up and um, I became short of breath and it was, I was hoping a neighbor would come to my aid in the car, but the roads were just so quiet that time of the morning. I eventually made it to the neighbor's house and the alarm was raised and um, we all then, and the shock, some of us started to run back up to the house again. As the neighbor lady, she um, made the necessary phone calls to the emergency services. But by the time I got to the house, my father was already dead. His death was instantaneous. The security services started to arrive, the army, the police, and um, even that morning, folks, even throughout that weekend, my grandmother and my uncle on my mother's side never made one phone call to check was I okay. My father had cousins, um, full cousins who lived in Dramar and Castle Wellen, who he was close to, and they came up to the house, comforted me, my minister. At that time, the police, um, it was quite a very intense few hours for me as a child, even though I was encountering the trauma. I remember the police coming in with all the books that you had seen, that you had seen the, the perpetrator. And I was imperative that I tried to identify that, and I knew that within myself. Produced all these montages of faces of known Republicans, but I didn't recognize any of them. So I had to start then and draw out a photo fit with the eyes, the cheek, the nose, and try to get this, um, this picture circulated so we could thwart uh, this individual wherever he might be at that particular time. Folks, it was just a very, very traumatic period. I remember the hearse pulling into the street later on and me looking out and seeing them carrying my father's remains to the coffin and the and it was very, very traumatic. And folks, if you go onto YouTube, just type in the murder of William Heenan, and you can see and appreciate the, the rugged rural locality in which it was, and you can see the hearse, which I refer to as part of a news bulletin. Folks, the South Down Command of the Provisional IRA claimed my father's murder one week later, stating that he was an RUC reservist. My father had no connection with the security forces albeit his membership of the Ulster Special Constabulary some 15 years previous. He said he was seen regularly at roadblocks, which, which, was, which was a lie, because my father was not a member, obviously, of the police reserve. He later found out that the gunman was dropped off at our home. His accomplice drove on to Kira Forest Park and waited there. The gunman hid in a wee outside toilet we had, as my father approached the top yard, he had a habit every morning looking out over the countryside because we had a fantastic view of the Moor Mountains. The gunman walked up behind him and he forced him to his knees and he shot him twice in the top of the head at point-blank range before dragging his body round to the side of the barn by the feet and then made his escape in my father's car. There are so many anomalies in my father's murder that are quite unique within the contacts of Northern Ireland which are alluded to me by the historical inquiries team. One was that terrorists in Northern Ireland never leave their getaway to chance. So how was that gunman so confident that morning of securing my father's car keys? Which could have been anywhere in question. It could have been his trouser pocket. It could have been the house. It was a chance that he was taking. But he was confident. And he found the keys and he made his escape. The bullets that were used to murder my father were not made in a munitions factory and that they were homemade. Modified from an old shotgun cartridge, the lead shot taken out and improvised to suit the gun. The gun that was used to murder my father had never been used before in the history of the Troubles and has never been used since and has never been identified and was a really old weapon. So it's only increased the risk of malfunction and if that gunman, that gun had a jam that morning, he was in trouble because he had no way of making his 
escape. Those no intelligence come in before the murder, I could prevent the murder. But after my father's murder, intelligence come in uh, to suggest that two prominent Republican activists from the nearby town of Castlewell were identified at the house of someone in the locality the day before. And later on that evening, were stopped at a checkpoint along the murder route. And one of those suspects, one year later, was subsequently charged with transporting a bomb into Newry. And he served a 16-year sentence. He's now out, and he's now living, and he's now working happily in Castle Wallen. Folks, even at that point in my young life, I was aware of the community focus that was on me as a child, as, as the headlines, the wee boy running down the road. I remember my father's the, the revulsion that was generated for his murder. I remember the, the funeral. I remember the day of the funeral, and it was <coughs> um, great intensity for me. But even at that point in my life, folks, because of that community focus, I realized that I had to make a, a decision even at that stage in life. What path, what road I was going to go down. Was I going to go down a road to try and make my parents proud or was I going to go down a road of revenge or retribution? But I couldn't go down the ladder. Because even as a child, I couldn't have visited that evil on someone else's door that was brought to mine. I had to make a decision of where I was going to live and I opted for Castle Wallen with my cousins because that was where I attended, was attending school. It was a very, very difficult period in my young life. A period that was experienced and trauma by so many children, needlessly, throughout what was commonly known as the Troubles. Young people from both communities experienced harrowing sights and images because of the evil and the wicked men and depraved individuals that were circulating in our midst at that time. I continued on through life at 12 and 13. <coughs> I was always brought up faithfully to go to church. I have to say I could have took church or I could have left church. The local minister, Church of Iron Rector, which we attended, was, provided tremendous pastoral support to me as a wee boy at that particular time. There was happy moments too where I found myself a recipient of a Child of Courage Award. And I also found myself on a trip six weeks to America. Me boy hardly been in Belfast, found myself for respite to a lovely family that provided that at that particular time. The community was so good to me, and I was so aware of that. But you know what? You do drift in to the ways of the world, and, and um, I found myself at 15 years old, one night sitting in the Belmont Hotel Bombridge. I was going there for the social outlet. I was going there with friends. And um, I remember sitting around a table one night in the bar in the disco and God speaking to me that night, even as a 15-year-old boy. When I say speaking to me, I'm not a sensationalist person. What I mean by that is I couldn't get the things of God out of my mind that night. I was troubled. I was singing about God that whole entire evening. That was not the reason I was going to the Belmont. So I left that building that night and I never thought anything more about it. All the while I was continuing to go to church and um, drifting into the ways of the world. At 16 years old, all I wanted to do at that point was to join the Orange Institution and follow in the footsteps of my father and support my culture and my identity. 
very important to me at that particular time. And folks, I say it tonight, and I'll say it wherever I go. One of the proudest things that I am is that I'm an orange man. Amen. And I have to say tonight, folks, sadly, there's places I go that would not and is not well received. But I love my culture. I love, I love the whole, the many aspects of it. I know there's some unsavory aspects of it. I know. But folks, have provided great support to our people throughout some very dark and difficult days. <coughs> And why, folks, I mentioned that in my life, little did I realize me joining that institution, the spiritual impact it was also going to have upon my young life and the positive influence it was having upon me. Because when I joined that organization, folks, I came under the sound of the gospel. And, folks, I know it's increasingly trendy within Christian circles today to demean and to denigrate that organization to the extent that there's actually prejudice against it when there's churches today. Folks refuse to facilitate that service. Men wanting to come to church and because of a wee piece of orange cloth around their neck is a barrier to hearing the gospel. A missed opportunity. Because, folks, I attended those services and that is where the gospel started to have an impact on me. I was told I needed to be born again. I heard about the message of sin I heard about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the middle tree at Calvary. I was coming now under conviction of sin. A battle then commenced in my life at that point where I was into the ways of the world, but I was also going to church. I was going to missions. It was just a topsy-turvy few years. <coughs> I was going to the discos on Saturday night, but I was thinking about things of God. God was continuing to convict me even throughout all those years. To come to the point, folks, that I lost the appetite and the interest to go to those establishments. And I met Julie. Julie was only 15 when I was 20. Julie was a Christian. And I started to attend church <coughs> with Julie. Folks, it was nights I tossed and I turned in my bed. I could not get the things of God. And these, these feelings, these thoughts were becoming even more intense. The nights I couldn't sleep. God was dealing with me, even in the stillness and the solemnity of my bedroom. To one night, folks, I couldn't withstand it any longer. In 1993, in April, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, and I accepted him as the Lord and Savior of my life. A decision to this day that I have never, ever regretted, because I know when I look back, despite the trauma that I encountered, the Lord brought me through those dark and difficult times. <coughs> and he was there for me. And folks, he had saved me. <laughs> All I wanted to do was have a family of my own back again. Julie and I got married. I was 25 and she was 20. Her first daughter came along and her second daughter came along and life was complete. And I have to say, folks, it was the happiest period in my life to have a wife and a family that I could love I could demonstrate support and love and folks there was mistakes made in my life growing up I harbour no grudges about that because what happened it happened for a reason to this day folks I have nobody to ask the questions I have low, many many questions but I have very few answers how that situation was allowed to evolve and allowed to develop <coughs> but all I could do now was concentrate on my own family the mistakes that were made in my life, I've got to try and counteract them in the lives of my wife and children and be the best husband 
and the best father that I could be to them. I continued on through life till I was 37. The one night I was asked at a victim service, would I share my testimony in First or Friday in Presbyterian Church? It was one of those questions, you know, you wish the person hadn't asked because I didn't know whether I could get up here and do that. I didn't know where I could put my story into context. I didn't know where I could deliver that. But yet again, I thought back, God helped me through that difficult period in my life. And this was my chance to bring glory and reward to him for how he helped me. So folks, as I say, I've been around many churches, orange halls, establishments throughout this province. (coughs) I've even got an opportunity now, next month, to go and of all places, to tell this story tonight to Nuri Shamrocks. That's a Catholic boys youth club in Nuri. So to give those young boys a different perspective of the troubles, to deglamorize the revisionism of terrorism and how they're um, embracing that and many still within the nationalist Republican community. To bring the harrowing stories and also, folks, to bring my faith in Jesus Christ to those young boys. As I said, I don't tell my story tonight for sympathy or for sensationalism, but just as an accurate picture of what happened to me. And I stand before you tonight simply as a sinner saved by the grace of God. A question is always asked, Sammy, as a Christian, surely you can forgive the people who murdered your father. (coughs) I know there's an expectation in some quarters that I should be able to forgive There's a theological interpretation to that. Some would say you must forgive to relieve that burden. But folks, for me tonight, I struggle with that. I cannot forgive the people who murdered my father because they've demonstrated no remorse, no restitution, no repentance towards me. Folks, they have have not sought my forgiveness. And folks, true forgiveness can only be found as irrelevant what I think in Jesus Christ. So I do struggle with that aspect. And suppose I am a forgiven person by nature. But folks, it's like a scab on your arm that never gets a chance to heal. When you turn the TV screens on and you endure those individuals, folks, revising the past, and it does cause re-traumatism for the victims to watch them try to justify and eulogize and celebrate the murders of our loved ones. People who give their all to defend this country from the freedom and the scourge of terrorism. And folks, it is right tonight as Christians that we stand up for what we believe in. It is imperative that we do that to preserve the memory and integrity, as I say again, of our loved ones. Folks, we look back from the foundation of time, we look back at David and Goliath. David stood up for what he believed and he stood up for his people he stood up for God God gave him the power to defeat his giant folks we think of Jesus and as he cast out the money changers in the temple he stood up for what he believed in and no greater example of that when he, he gave his life for each and every one of us here this evening we think of the, the men who went off from these shores to the far off fields of France in the great war of 1914 they took their stand they were expected to, to witness great horrors. But they defended our people from the tyranny of our foe. Standing up is right for what we believe in. Because we had a look the, recently at the case of the Ushers Bakery. They could have walked away. 
Indeed, society would have expected them to walk away. But folks, they took their case to the highest court in the land. They had their faith in God's word. That marriage is between one man and one woman. And folks, they were exonerated. And folks, they defended the integrity of this book. We think over the other night, folks, or the other few months back, there was 20,000 people walked to Stormont. They stood up for what they believe and to defend the life of the unborn child. Who would have thought in this society, this humane society, we would tolerate the murder of the most innocent? But those people stood up for what they believed in. And sometimes as victims of terrorism, you come into a church context, some people actually view us as toxic because of what we have to say and if you can't forgive, and it's, oh, it's maybe awkward. That's the reality of the troubles of what happened within Northern Ireland, sometimes how Christians view us. <coughs> but we asked ourselves tonight, folks, why did so many bad things happen in this little land of ours? A little land that demonstrated hospitality between people, neighbourliness. We can go into the politics of why that happened. Why was there so much depravity and bloodshed? Folks, because of one word. And that word is sin. And the Bible's a lot to say about sin. Behold, I was shaping in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. <coughs> right from Newry to Londonderry, people were driven off their land because of that sin. You go down into that city. Roman Catholic men coming home from a night out were abducted and bundled into a taxi. An unimaginable suffering inflicted upon them. How could that happen? Because of sin. But the Bible also says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What are you going to do tonight, folks, with the Savior? If you're here tonight, and you don't know him in that personal and intimate way. Because he died on that middle tree at Calvary. For the whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He conquered death. He conquered hell. And he conquered sin. And his own appointed unto man wants to die. And after that, the judgment. And that judgment, that eternal judgment, that there's only two eternal destinies. Folks, it's heaven or it's hell. That's the reality. And some people breeze through life without thinking of the end game, without thinking of the consequences. Life is fragile. Life at best is very brief, like the falling off a leaf. Like the binding of a sheaf, be in time. My father went out that morning. He was a 51-year-old man. The sun was shining. He did not think for one minute there was a terse lurking in the midst to take his life. My father was, my mother was 43 years old. She went to bed that night. She never thought for one minute. Her feet were never going to touch the floor of our home again. <laughs> If you're here tonight and God's speaking to you, you're not here tonight by chance. 
You're here tonight by divine direction. If God's speaking to you, don't turn him away. Don't do as I did as a 15-year-old boy sitting in the dingy old nightclub in Bonbridge. <laughs> because if I'd lost my life in that intervening years, folks, my soul would have been a lost eternity this evening. That's the consequences. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't take a chance with our physical health. Why do we pay so much disregard to our spiritual health? I have come through loss, and I'm sure each and every one of you have experienced similar loss where there's a void in your life because of the death of a loved one. Life is fragile. You know that pain, and I know that pain. But whatever you come through, whatever trials and tribulations you face, God will be there for you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. No matter what you face, God will be there for you. And He's calling upon you this evening. Very serious matter. To put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Open your heart. Let him in. Trust in him. Believe in him. And live your life according to his wishes. The Bible says, or the wee hymn says, sorry. Life at best is very brief like the falling of a leaf. Like the binding of a sheaf be in time. Fleeting days are telling fast that the die will soon be cast. And the fatal line be passed be in time. Sinner, heed the warning voice, make the Lord your final choice. Then on heaven will rejoice, be in time. Come from darkness into light. Come, let Jesus make you right. Come receive his life tonight. Be in time. I trust everyone here tonight will be in time. Thank you. I would just like on your behalf to thank our brother Samuel for his opening up of his heart and sharing with us tonight. Not easy. The death of three precious loved ones in a very short space of time. The murder of his dear father. It resonates with many, doesn't it? 